Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferrance.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 62. My guest and I get into the weeds on record labels and deals, what musicians look for in a producer, the importance of understanding yourself as an artist, that's a big one, and why you should always be bringing value to every interaction. And that last bit is where I thought we'd pull this opening from, bringing value. So after my interview with this guest, he graciously sent me a copy of the book, The Go-Giver by Bob Berg. It came up in our chat, and I'd mentioned that it was on my list, but that I hadn't gotten into it yet. So first off, thanks, Casey, for sending that over. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And second, I recommend it to all of our listeners. Definitely check it out if you haven't. Link to that in the show notes. So I'm not going to break it down bit by bit. I'll let you read it for yourself. But there's one key takeaway that I wanted to highlight. And like I said before, it's about bringing value. So the way the book is laid out, you're basically following the story of a salesperson that's looking for a career boost. And he gets hip to this super successful businessman who's willing to share his secrets of success, which he calls the five laws of stratospheric success. The first of those laws is the law of value, which states your true value is determined by how much more you give in value than you take in payment. I'll speak for myself on this one because I think it's rude for me to make accusations of y'all, but my guess is that a lot of you will probably be a bit like me on this one. I've definitely had times in my career where my work became very transactional, and a lot of it sometimes comes from the way that we do business in the connected world. I've mixed songs for people I've never spoken to. A message from my website turns into a mix project, a few emails are exchanged, the client is pleased, and done deal. It's easy, it's convenient. Now, do you think that person ever comes back for mix number two? Hardly ever. And sometimes I pause to think about that, I wonder why. Because in my mind, I delivered a great mix, right? And they were super happy with the final result at the time. And I mean, why would they not come back? I provided value, right? Well, I don't know. Did I really? I provided a service to someone and I had no actual interaction with them. They basically ordered a phone charger on Amazon. It showed up and it worked. And when they lose that charger and they order another one, are they going to go find that previous order and get the exact same one from the exact same vendor? No, of course not. They're going to type in phone charger, they're going to click the first one, and they're going to buy it. So with that in mind, if we look at the lion's share of my work, it's from clients I have long-standing relationships with, as well as word of mouth and recommendations. All people I've worked in rooms with for hours, people that will stop by the studio and hang, people that I've passed gigs to, people that I've helped out that suggest me for things. There's a stark difference between those long-time loyal clients that would beg me to come out of retirement to mix a record and these transactional internet jobs. Value. These clients that I can't get rid of if I tried are the people that I've provided far more value for than I've taken in payment. 
And I think a lot of people in the music industry fall into this trap. Think of how our business has changed, especially over the last few years. So many of us are working remotely in situations that might let us slip into these transactional type relationships with our clients. Session players are laying tracks down at home. Mixing and mastering are more remote than they've ever been. Producers are doing additional production or maybe just selling beats and stems. And let's be honest, selling beats on your website seems easy. But at that point, you're literally running a zero interaction storefront. Find a way to separate yourself from the crowd and provide extra value. Maybe you want to offer songwriting consultation or mix notes to somebody that buys one of your beats. Get creative with it. Here's another example, session drummers. These days, you can get amazing tracks from amazing drummers all over the world, all remote. Now, if you're a drummer, think about how sessions worked in person. You did takes with the band until the producer thought everybody had a great one. Then everybody comes in and listens, takes a few notes, maybe marks a spot they want to punch. You might ask the engineer to nudge a fill or ask the producer to grab a bridge from another take. Maybe you even suggest an overdub idea. Everybody worked in the room to make each other better because they were all invested in the song at that point. Everybody's in there providing value and feeding off of each other. Okay, so now think about how easy it is to have your drums mic'd up at home, load up four songs from four different artists, play them all down twice, and send two takes back to everybody. You'd never do that in a live session. So start thinking about what you can do to provide value in this transactional internet economy. In the drummer's case, maybe you want to send raw and processed files. Maybe you want to drop some triggers or samples in. Maybe quantize your tracks if it stylistically fits, of course. Do something to separate yourself. Bring more value. Okay, so after all this, I encourage you to think about the clients you can't get rid of versus the ones that you can't get back. And think about the differences between what you provided for each of them. Is it possible that you thought your skill or service alone was enough value when in actuality it wasn't? Remember, most of us are service providers in one way or another. Mixers, engineers, beat makers, top liners, whatever. We're a dime a dozen at this point. There are a lot of comparable, quote, products out there, so you need to find a way to distinguish yourself from the competition. And if you're having a hard time pinning down your value, here's a thought. Maybe your X factor is that you're just an authentic person. Maybe it's that easy. Maybe your value is simply that you authentically want everybody in the room to be at their best. Wait, that's funny. One of the other laws of stratospheric success is the law of authenticity. What a coincidence. Today's guest is musician, producer, mixer, and songwriter Casey Cavalier. Casey is the guitarist and a founding member of the band The Wonder Years. Over the past 15 years, they've toured around the world and released six full-length records and two EPs. When he's not on tour or recording with his band, Casey's producing records out of True Level Studios, which he also co-owns and operates. He's a fellow podcaster launching his show called The Record Process in 2021. And he also works with artists as a development coach, helping them find their voice and steer their careers. So tons to get into. Welcome to the show, Casey Cavalier. Hey, how you doing? Thank you. Good to see you again. So good to see you again. Uh, full disclosure, it hasn't been too long. We have chatted quite recently. Just as an aside, you've got a great radio <laughs> host. Like you're built for this, aren't you? You've done this a couple times. I mean, I know that, but I'll start by uh, giving some props on that. That was very nice. I was like, man, this is, yes, it's accurate, but it's just well strung together. Hey, nice. <laughs> well, <laughs> so thank well, you. I appreciate yeah. that. I appreciate that. Man, I'm stoked to hang because... I was putting the bio together and I was like, shit, there's a lot of, like, we could talk about the Wonder Years for a whole episode. We could talk about your independent, like, engineer producing thing for a whole episode. And I'm sure we could talk about the artist development thing for a whole episode. So we just got to hit the gems. So, like, yeah. if I'm going down a rabbit hole where there's nothing good, just be like, hey, man, we got to move on to this other story. It's great. 
oh no, you know what? If you're going down a rabbit hole, I'm the wrong person to try and get you out of it. I'm the guy that says, hey, yeah, this one looks great. We should start going down this faster. But I'll, I'll do my best, as I always say. So, because yeah, there is a ton to get to. Could probably, you know, if I had no filter, split it up into way too many episodes that your listeners would not consume any of and be like, this guy again? <laughs> Seven episodes in a row. This is weird. Yeah, this feels out of character for Travis. I don't, what's going on here? <laughs> is he being like extorted by this fella or something? <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, yeah, it's a lot of hats. Truly, just like so many people in our world now. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure so many people on your show the same way where I think the time in which we live and the time in which we find ourselves as a part of this creative pursuit, whether it be on the technical side of things or the more like whatever left or right brain side of tasks you're involved in, if it's in music or the art world in any way, I think it's harder to just fully be one of those things. You know, it's like I'm all for specialization 100% when you can do it. <laughs> yeah. But um, being malleable and flexible is also cool. And uh, I love shows like yours because I am a constant self-improver and love uh, love growing and learning. So uh, what can I say? That's led me to a handful of different paths, I guess. Totally. You know, what's funny is why you were saying that you actually kind of said what I was just thinking. I feel like the goal for so many people, everybody says like, hey, you got to like niche down and like find that thing that like you're really good at. But then at the same time, you have to do like 50 other things. It's like very contradictory, but they definitely in this weird way, like move together. It's very odd. You're so right. And the niching down thing is so true. And I remember that blew my mind. I was like, that's totally not what I'm doing. That's, that's <laughs> why like, none oh, of this shit. has made sense. And there's merit to that. In no way am I going to throw shade at a lot, you know, other guys that have shows that that is what they preach. Cause there is definitely merit to that. And that's a huge part of success is understanding what you do really well, you know, totally. for like putting it into a business facade. It's doing that like SWOT analysis of <laughs> where, you know, leaning into your strengths and steering away or finding someone else to supplement your weaknesses. But like, I think overall, I mean, I guess the biggest thing is learning to be flexible and adapt because I think what I found is like, and we'll get into some of this later, maybe, but like setting out goals and kind of envisioning whether, you know, you're just starting out and you're like, hey, I want to be an engineer like Travis, right? And I want to make records. I want to go on tour like the Wonder Years or whatever it might be at whatever stage. Whenever you get there, it's never quite exactly what you thought it would look like, right? So <laughs> no matter how hard you plan and try to like really, you know, get those super hyper-focused map quest directions there, you wind up there. I mean, that's where I'm sitting like 15 years later. And I'm like, this is not what I thought I'd be talking about on a podcast with the people that I've gotten to have these conversations and make this kind of music with. And they've all looked different, right? So it's all about perspective. And I think that remembering that has just helped me too to be like, hey, let me refocus and say it's like, okay, well, I should maybe like really niche down on this one thing. I should also be aware that if something is pulling me creatively or depending on who you bump into on the street, right? Changes kind of the course of your thought process. And that for me, I've been lucky enough to have a lot of really incredible creatives and some great just like general 
friendships and relationships from a mentoring standpoint as well that have kind of illuminated some like, oh, wow, I didn't even know that that was possible, right? It's like a career day. You have people come in, you're just like, okay, I know I can be a fireman. They're telling me I can be an astronaut. That seems like sick, but I wonder why literally everybody in the world isn't picking astronaut. So there must be something there. And then (laughs) you don't realize how long and kind of almost never ending and always growing that list actually is until you get to the certain points where you get to fray off and you're like, oh, I've kind of made my own job, I guess, which is where I sit and where it's like you're saying like podcaster. Yeah, that's not a thing that Honestly, when I was career day, like in elementary school, a podcaster was not a thing. They'd be like, is that some sort of sci-fi thing? And now here we are. Look at us now. You know, (laughs) it it is. It is funny. I wasn't a podcast like listener until maybe like two and a half, three years ago when I was like driving more. I was like, I'm going to try this podcast thing. And never in my life would I thought I would be sitting here like hanging out with people on the Internet. Maybe one day I'll start doing these in person. Who knows? But uh, I don't know. It's a trip. You never know. Yeah, it's like you said. You never know where the journey's going to go. And to be fair, it was given a violent shove by the last two <laughs> years of glorious, glorious hibernation that we've all just seemed to collectively be doing. Yeah, it's like there's also like a silver lining thing in there, but it doesn't really feel right to say it that way. But like when this all started, I was like, well, I've always kind of wanted to do something. I love having these conversations with my studio partners and people that come in and, you know, like yourself, friends that I just meet from friend of a friend kind of stuff, whether it goes down the gear chat wormhole or whatever. And I was like, man, how can I, how can I kind of do that in a more, not to say like productive fashion, but like in a more structured way, you know? Um, (laughs) And it's like, I feel like there's maybe not always, but maybe occasionally fragments in here that could be useful to other people. If someone else was listening let me try to refine that. And then that kind of builds out to the, oh, this medium that I already consume is actually maybe a really good vehicle for that because it puts it into digestible chunks, allows me to focus, but also can open up a whole other world of people and shows like yourself taking cues and just generally being a fan, right? I think like even just musicians, it's like, a lot of people are like, how do I get better? I'm just like, just go be a fan, go listen to records. Yeah, I mean, for you from like the mixing engineering side of things, you're just refining your taste. That's all you're really doing. So the more you can put in, the smarter your like algorithm-esque brain will be when it comes to, you know, making decisions and things like that. So I kind of look at it like that too, occasionally as well. So I couldn't agree more. All right. So talking like post-pandemic, I think when this airs, you guys will be about to hit the road or or probably maybe on the road. Yeah. Are you just like super stoked to get back on stage? So we got back on stage very briefly into what I'll say is our world that we've been very accustomed to over the last decade and a half, which is that of like intimate club tours, which was a thing that was like kind of a no-no for a very long time. So at the end of last year, we had a string of shows where we did that and that kind of jump-started the engine again. We had done a few things, done some live stream stuff throughout the previous two years. And uh, it was very interesting, to say the least. I was happy to do it and the response to it. I think we were lucky to feel so supported. And I think that was definitely a moment where not only did we see and truly understand, not that we had forgotten, but it just makes you grateful for the community, specifically that our band came up in, which is rooted in very punk and like DIY community-based ethos where you have independent promoters. That's a really nice, fancy way of saying 
some kid at your high school that really loves music too much and decides to book bands at the local VFW and lie to the owner and say that he is 18 so he can sign the rental contracts and then hope the cops don't get called to shut it down. Anecdotally speaking, yes, I have seen that once or twice. I think that was also like a really nice thing where not only do all the other bands tend to look out for each other and share that ethos within it, but you attract fans and a community and an audience that really showed up when everybody didn't know what was happening. There was so much uncertainty, especially in entertainment and music, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you saw that with like studios shutting down and things going remote that really it's hard to do in a remote realm. You lose a lot of that connection from a collaborative and creative standpoint and like being able to move quickly like you would in person. But we were really lucky because we had fans show up not only to those moments where we went completely digital and tried to make some experience happen um, for them. And uh, they all came out virtually. And then two years later, came out in person for that small run. So now we're going back in and really biting off a lot with a two month long run where we'll be playing two albums that are have both turned 10 plus years old. We'll be playing both of those back to back, our first record upsides and second record suburbia. So amazing. There will be a couple songs every night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but we are very excited. I do love those records and it'll be a walk down memory lane for the fans that have been with us for that long and for us too, to just kind of put on my hat and be like, really, that's what I was thinking. That's what I was writing back then. Okay. All right. You know, <laughs> and just kind of appreciate it as part of the journey. <laughs> No, it's, I mean, it's awesome, though, that you're in a position where you can say that about something that you wrote, you know, and recorded 10 years ago. You can be like, oh, yeah, I was in a different place. I mean, the fact that you're in the same band playing to the same people playing the same songs is like is amazing because there's a lot of bands that, you know, they have a four year run. They have a five year run. And then, you know, there's some bands that have 50, 60 year runs. But it's uh, it's awesome that you guys are have sustained, you know, a badass career. So that's that's great. Since we're talking memory lane, let's go like back to like, how'd you end up with a guitar in your hands and how'd you end up in this band? Oh man. Yeah. Well, the guitar in the hands was not the first instrument when you're in like elementary school or whatever it is, you know, public school, they had, um, the band director come around with like one instrument from every section. It's like, okay, like the <laughs> basics, like here's the trumpet, here's a trombone, here's a flute. Here's a clarinet. And everybody's like, wait, which one makes the loud sounds? And then everybody's like with the flute, this thing doesn't work. I hate this. And <laughs> then you just get a bunch of like, so this one just squeaks. No, that's a clarinet. It's uh, just pick that up over there. We'll put you on drums. So I guess I had heard something along the way that said my dad had played trombone years ago, like when he was a kid. Uh, so I guess I picked that one for that reason. And that was the kind of like introduction to music. I stayed with that all through high school and it gave me a really cool entry point into the world of like big band jazz. And, and we had a great mentor as a, a high school band director that brought a lot of those things that if I had just started out with a guitar in my hand, learning like, you know, power chord songs or Zeppelin songs or something, I probably would have really never gotten there. So I am lucky in that sense that it was curated from a pretty diverse spectrum early on 
Yeah, then the guitar came along, I guess, just because, yeah, my dad was an old classic rocker, played in bands in the 60s and 70s that uh, had some mild like regional success and like had the like almost famous moment where they had signed and put out some records on like Capitol, Paramount, Warner Brothers in like that Doobie Brothers, like long hair, bell bottom, bedazzled area. The few pictures that are left over are nothing short of legendary. But uh, I always told everybody, I was just like, if you've seen the bass player in Spinal Tap and you've seen any like headshots or promo shots of the band Three Dog Night, I was like, put all those together. And that was my dad. (laughs) So I guess that's where it's like there were a couple bases lying around, you know, that he didn't really play anymore, but he still had that and a few like Ampeg, like B25, like head and like a 215 matching cab with it, you know, that he had used to play live. And so I guess at a certain point I was like, does this thing work? That was the first like electric thing that I plugged in and had no idea. I was like, whoa the windows are shaking. That's crazy. And yeah, I guess the rest is kind of, you know, I was like, wait, well, I can do more with two more strings and then I can play the songs that I want to hear and they'll sound more like what they actually sound like. So I guess that's pretty much the short of it. And, you know, he probably grabbed me like a cheap guitar to be like, I know how this goes. You know, this is how it went, you know. Um, And then (laughs) high school came, you start playing in bands, you get bit by the ska bug. Um, I was about to say, if you were a trombone player, you must have ended up in a ska band. Yes, I had heard of less than Jake uh, at a certain point um, (laughs) and plenty other bands in that world. But I loved it. I mean, which also then like coming full circle, like Wonder Years stuff, half the band, my bass player and our drummer in the band went to high school together. And then the other three guys went to neighboring high school, like 20 minutes away. And there was kind of like, you know, a DIY scene in Lansdale, which was the town kind of centralized to where we were all living. And um, I mean, that we all played in different bands that were all in the same shows. And then high school came, we all graduated and it was like all of us were ready to go to college. It was this kind of like almost like the punk and like pop punk stuff was this thread of commonality across everything that all our different bands at the time were trying to do, whether it was like the much more like emo tinged wave or like the Americana like Springsteen type stuff or like progressive like indie prog rock type stuff and everything in between. And we were like, well, we all kind of love, you know, these bands in this like Blink, Motion City, like saves the day kind of world. And a a lot of others, I mean, many of which were, you know, from like Philly had like a really great and always has had a really great music scene. But specifically in that genre at that like punk rock, like major labels were starting to sign, you know, bands that were like 15 and could barely play guitar. And they're just like, he looks alternative. They're going to love this, you know? Um, (laughs) And Warp Tour was huge and killing it, right? So I I guess, you know, we kind of, took an afternoon in the summer and just got together in like a sense, not to set out to start a band, but just to be like, I don't know, let's just write a, write a song in that way. And our singer, Dan kind of looked around and was like, well, am I supposed to like write lyrics? What do I write about? You're like, well, shit, we didn't really think about that. I don't know. And it was pretty much, I remember it being (laughs) like, should they be like serious or a joke? And we were like, feels like it's got to be a joke. And so that was like the first handful of songs, (laughs) you know, that it was effectively like a tenacious D of pop punk type thing. And at some point we were like, hey, we're having fun playing these songs. And I remember him coming to us and saying, yeah, guys, I've got to sing these. I can't really do it with a straight face, but also it doesn't feel like it's the environment that feels super honest and earnest to like, 
have this like weird performative, like what amounts to like a stand up bit, but in like lyrical storytelling. Uh, so, you know, and we're like, <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's true. All right. Well, and, you know, and slowly started leaning in. But the voice of that, I think, was always kind of there. And I mean, clearly anybody that has followed the band and follows the lineage of albums can see it got more serious, so to speak, in terms of weight. But also that's just kind of a product of, I think, life. Us growing up and the input changes, your yeah. place in life changes, your perspective changes. And I think our career has been because we've been lucky to keep making music enough. We now have a body of work where you can kind of see that. And I think a lot of our fans have in a cool way expressed that they've also grown with it and have kind of mirrored some of those life events. So we've been very lucky. But that's, that's cool. probably the story of how that all kind of came to be from trombone to current time. Yeah. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. So, like, right out of high school, did you hit the touring world? Were you getting courted by labels? Like, did people go to college and they finished? Or, like, when did you guys know, like, you were in a band and that's what your job was? So, you know, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of those bands that I talked about, like in that drive through era and that Warped Tour world that were just yeah. like, they were getting snatched up. They were like, we heard this EP and you've got something. Here's like a million dollar contract. That was not our story by any <laughs> means. So we actually had a much different trajectory that was kind of and always have in some ways had like a slow burn career that is not necessarily typical for like either our genre or or really like rock in general, or maybe you see it more in rock than you do in pop, I guess, yeah. in some other much more mainstream genres. But we did all go to college, but we all went regionally, you know, within a couple hours. So we were able to come back and continue playing shows in the area on weekends. So it kind of kept us drawn and centralized in an interesting way that we could keep having fun with it, but none of us were holding it like too, too tight. Uh, and we, we didn't break away. And then I think two years in, we made a full length of said Tenacious D-esque joke songs. And I guess we got convinced the label, a small independent label at the time that we were on, we kind of conjured up. We were like, hey, we'd love to go on tour. We just wrote and recorded a lot of songs that sound like this. And then again, at the time, we were enjoying playing and thought were very funny and put a smile on our faces. And so we did do, a, you know, a full US DIY tour on that, had some good experiences, and I guess continued to build up an interesting amount of momentum in that regard, that by the time we were all graduating high school, we were kind of getting to a point where we were able to just be like, okay, let's take the leap. Let's go do this. So we weren't starting from zero. You know, we knew that there was a little bit of a fan base kind of cooking and maybe ready to kind of burst open in a little bit of a way. And it wasn't long after in 2010, I believe, well, I mean, it's a 20 year anniversary of this record, so I guess it must be right. But it was interesting <laughs> that we put out our record, The Upsides, on this small label, No Sleep Records. And then very shortly after, Hopeless Records, who we've been with for all of our subsequent albums, came along and expressed interest and basically bought the rights to that and re-released it. And that kind of started our career with them. Amazing. That's yeah. awesome. 
since we're kind of talking about it, I wanted to talk about record deals. And it's not like, I don't want you to like throw your label under the bus or anything, but. Oh, that's okay. They'd expect it. <laughs> they know right where we are. We have a very, <laughs> we've, like I said, we've been with them for a while. It's like a marriage, you know? There you go. I feel like everybody wants a record deal, right? But then you hear like 50% or more of the people that have had a deal in their life are like, that was bullshit. I hated that. Do you have any thoughts for kids that like, they want a record deal? Do they need it? When do they need it? What do you say to these kids that they think they have to have a deal? Oh my God, Travis, I think I have too many thoughts on this, actually. That's <laughs> precisely why I have gone down the rabbit hole of <laughs> artist coaching. Uh, <laughs> this almost exclusively started out because of that question, because I got so many people just being like, so how do we get this signed? Like the buzz phrases of like, so can you help us shop it? I'm just like, no. And here's why that won't do anything for you, you know? Um, and, and that's not to say that it, that phrase can't yield results. But I think a lot of times rewinding backwards from the conversation of, hey, how can we get signed to the, hey, should we be signed? And hey, why should we be signed? Why do we want to be signed? Start to illuminate more and more. And then most of the time when I have this conversation, whether it be with younger bands, like say that come in the studio, we do a couple songs. It's a significant step forward, like sonically for them, or, you know, the songwriting feels like it's really progressed, but then they are like, well, where do I go with it? What do I do? And a lot of times I think some of that is just out of sheer not knowing. And they're just like, well, a label knows what to do because a label has success and has big artists. So clearly they know what to do. They know how to do certain things. And that's what I kind of say too, is the better ask is trying to put yourself in a position. And especially now too, where it's so competitive that labels, you know, you have to understand that their business model is changing too, just like the artist model has changed. And you know, what it means to be an independent artist has changed and what potential there is for that. So I think the better question is, what are your expectations of a label and are they in line with whatever you're willing to give up by signing to a label? And that's when you say a record deal, that's a deal. That means transactional in the sense that you're giving up something as an artist. And maybe I think sometimes you're not aware of what that could actually mean. Now, we obviously, because we've had such a long career, can look in the rear view at those first deals that we signed with a label and we looked at some of the points in those deals and said, hey, we don't love this, but it's a negotiation. We get why they want it in there. We can go back and forth. And, and then you can say, well, listen, at the end of the day, that's in there. But if that gets triggered or if that becomes a thing where we're like, ah, oh, damn it, then actually it probably means that we've had a pretty decent amount of success. So, OK, I'll take that in there, <laughs> you know, when we're talking about certain like ceilings to hit for certain clauses and they can get very complicated, especially in the major label world. But, you know, now everything and I mean, God forbid deals start involving this NFT nonsense, uh, which I'm sure they already do. I don't know where to go with that because even my lawyer is like, it's the Wild West. Nobody really knows right now. So a lot of people are going to find out and probably some are going to find the hard way, just like many artists have with the deals that they signed. Right. So I always say, how can you make yourself more attractive and give yourself any type of leverage before going to a label, right? Because yeah. nowadays a label are like, why would I sign you if there's somebody doing exactly what you're doing, but I see metrics that give me more confidence as an investor. So I tell a lot of fans and just artists in general to try to put their best label hat on or what it would look like 
if they were a bank and going to invest in an artist, right? Like, what would you want to see if you were like, hey, this person's asking me to like, you know, spend five figures on a record. What would you want to see to tell you that that's a good investment? You know, because a lot of people can be like, yeah, but it's so good. Like this music's incredible. It's like, there's honestly a lot of really good music out there, you know, and sadly, and I mean, it's not sad, it's incredible, you know, so to weed through it, a lot of labels and a lot of other, you know, businesses that are based on trying to take an artist and scale their growth um, and scale their audience and fan base, they want to at least know that something's connecting and that there's an engagement there, even if it's with a small number of fans. So that's what I say a lot of times too, is just the more you can know about yourself in terms of your music, your art, the better off you're going to be because you're going to, if you have to get in a room with everybody at a label at a round table, that's going to be somewhat of a stressful situation. But if you know yourself and your own brand as an artist, you're going to be able to speak in a more educated way. You're going to be able to understand what kind of things they're maybe going to want to. And it's going to make you a better negotiator when it comes to trying to like think about what you do and don't want to give up long term. So that's what I say. It's like, explore and try to get to know yourself. And you do that obviously through making songs, right? You know, like you make a whole record, you've made 12 large scale groups of very small decisions that all frame who you are as an artist, because they're all choices that you made creatively, right? But then there are choices outside of that in terms of how you want things to be presented, right? You go to Travis because you want things to be presented through the lens of his mix, right? You go to myself because you want things to be presented through someone that knows a certain genre or that gets a certain type of songwriting and style and might have a different take on telling the story that you want to tell and really gets those things down to who you align yourself with and the bands you go on tour with and everything in there. It all kind of informs who you are as an artist. And that's ultimately what a label wants to know and understand. And I think a lot of people are like, yeah, I walk on and then a label just tells me what to do. They make all of my assets. And it's like all of the bands that I've seen and artists that I've seen that have been the most successful are the ones that walk in and we're like, here's this vision. Here's the record. Here's what I think I want to do. Help me execute these things, you know? Um, yeah. And that's not to say that there aren't really intelligent people at a lot of these labels that have some incredible ideas because there are, but in my experiences and the experience that I've seen a lot, the best ones, there's always some sort of really incredible creative force, whether it's someone within the band or someone that's very like art handed and, and knows the aesthetic direction they want to take the band or all of those things. So the more you can know and get to know that about yourself before you start asking, you know, someone else to like figure that all out for you, the better off you'll probably be. And you'll know you'll waste less time because you won't spend a bunch of someone's money figuring out something that didn't work. <laughs> money you have to pay back. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're going to pay it back in whatever. It's like, you know, you can keep trying things, but that's ultimately, I think, the biggest hang up for a lot of labels is they're just like, they want confidence as an investor, just like anybody else. You know, if you look at it, a label as in a transactional world, a label of age, like they were like, hey, they are the bank. You have to pay that money back, or at least most of it, right? right? Now deals are getting structured so differently, of course. But yeah, the better you can know yourself and the sooner you can get to that point, the better off you're going to be because you're going to know where to go. You're going to know where to find people that are going to probably dig what you're doing and making. And that's all a label will do. They just 
do it all day long. So they maybe have the systems in place for it, which might be helpful if you are one person and can't do all of that yourself. That's a reasonable uh, reason to want that, right? Yeah, that's an amazing answer to that question. And I was thinking about so many stories that I know. It's like those people that get signed young that, like you said, don't know. And I think I talked about this on the podcast with somebody at some point. If you don't know the kind of artist you are, the label will gladly assign you a personality. And like that kind of thing, unless you're an actor and you're just going to fill that role, like that's not genuine and fans are not going to connect with that. But if you like know who you are, like you're saying, and you have your fans that love you for your vibe and what you do, and you bring that to quote your investor, which is an amazing way of thinking about it. I know how labels work and I've never put the word investor on it. That's all it is, really. I mean, if you think about, um, so uh, I'm a big Jim Carrey fan, love a lot of his work, Liar Liar, one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid, actually, but he's made plenty more. If you think about The Mask, that's a character that is just him. If you look at Jim Carrey and the way he like acts and his natural sense of humor, Robin Williams is another kind of creative genius um, in the same way that you're just like, these were all faces that were just inside of them. So they were all highly authentic and they were easy to just snap in and out of. And you probably on that set, you couldn't get him out of that character. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it was just letting him run wild. Now, if you bring in somebody else and say, this is the character on paper, you could give that person two years to try to perfect it. And it's not going to be that movie, right? It's never, never. So the fact that somebody walked in and was like, this is him. This is a character in him. Now I will write about this character that is in him in the same way a great label that knows and understands what they see in an artist, even if it's at a very infantile stage, they're just like, there's this thing, this this nut that I got to crack. I know there's something in here. And I've had some really incredible conversations with a few people that we've worked with at Hopeless and some other labels over the years. And it's been incredible to watch them bring on younger acts and the way they think about them. It's like, there's something there. There's this dynamic and I'm figuring it out and it's going to take me maybe a record or two, but I think I can see where we're going. And that's not them trying to bend an artist to their will. That's them trying to be like, I don't even think they know what they have. And I think I'm on it. And I think I'm going to try to help them figure it out and put them in the right environment and facilitate them starting to understand themselves where their real strengths and power lie. And that's for me, when a label can come at it like that is where it really starts to be beneficial because then they can connect people and formulate relationships. It's like, hey, I think you would benefit because you're an incredible songwriter, but this person getting you in the same room as them might elevate your songwriting and unlock some doorways for you that makes them just even more of an incredible creative force. So I love that. I've seen that. We've done a lot of that stuff too. So there can be that. But yeah, I think there's this like old school like suit analogy. It's there in the sense that, you know, that it is a business. So remember that, right? You know, and sometimes truly, I know that certain people at labels are like, hey, they want to hate us. That's okay. I'll play that role because sometimes (laughs) it'll bring out the best in them if this like fucking punk band has a chip on their shoulder right now. You know what I mean? Just a little pissed. (laughs) Yeah, they'll go and turn around and write a hit song about it. That's okay. You know what I mean? Like whatever it takes to conjure inspiration without overtly harming. Yeah, it's wild. But there's some power in there if you get with the right people that you can really establish a line of trust with. So yeah, yeah. You kind of set me up for one of my other questions that I jotted down when you were talking about being set up with producers or songwriters by your label. 
you work on the studio side of the glass, but then you obviously you play and you write and you're on the performance band side of the glass too. As a band member and a musician, when you walk into a studio or a writing session, like what makes you really get excited to work with a producer or a new songwriter or engineer? Like, is there a vibe thing that you're looking for? What for like kids that like want to be a successful engineer or producer? Do you have anything to say to them about from the other side? Yeah, listen. Ooh, we should just stop there. That's good. Honestly, <laughs> listen in every sense of the word. Listen to whatever the artist that's coming to you is saying. Because sometimes you're like, you start wanting to put words in their mouth and be like, I know exactly what this band's looking for, you know? And you might guess wrong, but maybe if you would have just, and I, I've been guilty of this. If you just shut up for a little bit, ask the right question, and then let them rap, they'll unravel everything that you want to need if you don't like stop them and be like, okay, what are you looking for this? And where, and the next thing I need to check is where is this? Where's, you know, what's this? And then on the flip side of it, like just listen to, to music together as well. And I think I love this. And the more I do it, the more it becomes a really important part of the process. And just like with your best friend sitting around, like listening to a record and having your mind blown because you've never heard anything like it in junior high or high school in those formative years, right? Go through those same things and have a conversation like it's its own language with what records do you like? What are you into? What have you been listening to now recently? What kind of stuff has you confused? What kind of stuff has you curious? And listen to it together. You play me one, I'll play you one, right? Like, where do you think you want to go with this next record? What do you think this band should sound like? Let's start talking in a lot of really rich, emotive adjectives. And what does that mean? Oh, you're saying like, kind of like somber? Okay, well, like, give me a song that to you, like, embodies that somber vibe, you know, in this world. And then eventually you'll get to certain things where you start pulling out these moments that are really powerful. And you're like, ooh, that little transition there, something about that little two measure pause kills me. And let's talk about why that kills you and then how we can go use that. And maybe it's not that exact same fragment, that exact same compositional section, but why it does it and then go use that and be like, hey, this is how we uh, get to where you want to be with this sound. If you want this to punch you in the face, maybe it's not like 12 guitar tracks on top of one another. You know, let's actually just like in the mix world, let's talk about why this mix really hits. I mean, dude, you know this, right? Like as a mixer, you're just like, can you turn this up and this up and this up? And also this, it's like, how about I just turn the shit before them down? You know, <laughs> or you do that and they're like, dude, this was incredible. That was the perfect amount up. I just turned the verses down. That's all I did. You know what I mean? Like, but it has the illusion and it's kind of like this magic trick uh, that you're massaging behind the scenes and sharing and, and working in those ways and deconstructing stuff. I think you get an incredible understanding of whether or not there's a crossover in ethos between a producer and an artist, songwriter, Whatever it might be, you know, you can go back and forth via email. You could have a couple phone calls, but it you might never get there, you know, or somebody on a phone call might say something really wrong or weird because they're like a nervous person. But then like, you're like, I don't know. I love the music they make, though. I don't understand. And you might never get past that. We're out That's here. True. You're probably on calls. You're interviewing for jobs. Every time we do a record, we have a call where we interview people, right? And that's not like a, okay, what's your resume like? How do you think you would fit here? It's not like that. The conversations a lot are, let's see what your take on our band is, because that I'm always curious about that. 
Because maybe they see something in us that, again, we don't see. And maybe it's like, hey, that's interesting. I would like to explore that this next record around. Or maybe, uh, and we've had some of these conversations too, where the person should not have been on the call or were not briefed by their assistant. They didn't get the notes uh, ahead of time, (laughs) whatever it was, or just made an illy time joke. And we're like, oh, no. That did not land and actually did just backfired work. so hard. We love these records or also like, again, realizing that if you just shut up and listen, there's a lot of assumptions that could be made. We had a call many records ago to do a Wonder Years record. And one of the producers that we got on the phone with, we were actually coming to him because of some of the like very dynamic, like almost more along the lines of like an indie rock album that he had done for a band. However, he had also done a lot of much heavier scene like screamo emo bands. And he assumed that everybody that came to him that was a rock band was like, oh, you're here because of this band. Right. Right. None of us liked that band. None of us cared about that band. We were here for this other like cool indie rock emo record that you made. But he had it all wrong. And if he would have sat and then instead of like tailoring the conversation to like, yes, this is why you're here. I can make you this record. We were like, actually, we like sure that you can do heavy, but that you can also do soft. What was your input on that? And just had it all kind of wrong. And it just threw us for a loop. And we did not select him. Not trying to, you know, make assumptions about why an artist is coming to you and just hear them out and see if it's a good fit. And people skills, it's not always easy. You know, it's it's very awkward. And when people are talking about, their music, it is so, so hyper personal. Oh, yeah. It's so crazy personal. And a lot of people don't want to break down those walls and, and keep certain things guarded and up. And and that's okay. You know, you have to you have to earn that. You have to earn your way in. And I think that's also something that should be understood is, you know, it's like if they're not giving it to you, you'll know if you're an artist and you're looking for someone to work with you'll know pretty quickly if it's okay to like be super candid and be on the level with someone. Or we've met some incredible people who their discography is like, you know, we've done records with them where I'm just like, you have crazy fucking Grammys. You've worked with the biggest artists in the world. Like, and you get into it like day one and you're like, yeah. And they're still kind of a nerd. That's awesome. Like, you know, like (laughs) they were also still kind of a loser in high school, weren't they? And all of a sudden it doesn't matter. You know, they could be twice your age and, and have, you know, a wall full of Grammys. And it's just like, yeah, there's a reason they have those. It's because every artist that made those all just had a vibe on that level with them and had that level of comfort and trust. So try and look for that when you can. Yeah. Since you've made records with, you know, some great engineers and producers and you've worked with, you know, lots of great people. And you did talk about this a little bit on Secret Sonics, our mutual friend Ben Wallach's podcast. Are there any things that you took away working with some of these other producers or engineers that influence the way you like approach your own productions and your own songwriting? Honestly, probably too many to name. We definitely don't have the time right now. (laughs) You got the first one that comes to mind? You know what? Yeah, there is. We've made a lot of records at this point with a guy named Steve Evitz. And he, again, too, I talk about those conversations you have where I think he immediately got us. He was originally a Jersey guy. So I think he got this like Northeast, like tri-state area, old school punk energy out of it from a lot of the records that he made like 20 years ago with uh, bands like Lifetime and Saves the Day. So when we came to him, he's like, I see that underlying band in you. And we're like, you're totally right. We feel that. And it actually wasn't even, I'll just step back. It actually wasn't even musically. It was kind of like the sarcastic Philly sense of humor 
mm-hmm. even within the first couple of minutes, he's like, oh, you guys are definitely from Philly. I love that. <laughs> and so he was able to take some of those jabs and, you know, the like self-deprecating humor and dish it back out. And so that was really important to us. But from a process standpoint, I mean, he was, you know, the first guy that we did proper, what I will consider proper pre-production on a whole album where you, you know, step in and play down the record and the songs in their current form. And for us, it was a really important step in understanding that, hey, a great song and a great arrangement should just kick ass live in a room, just like a straight up garage band style thing. You should know if that song's gonna have legs and gonna hold up. You shouldn't have to be like, yeah, but once we like do all the production stuff and once we do that, like you should be able to just feel those things inherently between the way like the kick and the bass parts are working between the way the vocal is not getting stepped on by other, you know, elements and everything's working together and the energy is naturally there. And I'll even say, you know, as much as a lot of guys that, you know, the age old production faux pas of no click versus click, right? If you're a drummer, like the war against click, he was really instrumental in kind of starting to shed light on the way it's be like, no, 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 no. That's just our guide, but I'm going to tailor that guide to you playing as a band live. So he's going to make those adjustments listening from the other room as we play and say, did it feel like the chorus, the click was like trying to push you guys? And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, I thought so too. Let me make some adjustments, right? And then you'd have this thing where we would keep working at sections and transitions until the click just disappeared. And I'm like, was the click even on? He's like, no, that's how on the click you guys were the whole way as it subtly moved a couple BPM here and just slowly ramped there because you were naturally doing it every time you were doing it as a band. So we just tailor that tempo map to it. And then that's the guide. And then when your drummer tracks, he doesn't feel like he's just tracking to like this hellscape of like a drip click torture. He feels like it's the guide as though the band was there because it feels like how we've kind of been rehearsing it. That's super cool. And we've done all of our records that way. And even so much so that our last record before the one that will be coming out next, you know, we tracked 80% of it live at Sunset Sound. Just all of us in a room, everything isolated, cabs isolated all over. And that's pretty much the record is like as close as, you know, you somewhat get in this genre to a a live record, you know, track down. We didn't do it to tape, Right. But it got us to the point where we're like, if we had to, we could do a record to tape and it would rip and we'd be okay. And I think that seems like a foreign thing to a lot of it. We're just like, what? We don't have the money for that. Are you kidding me? Do an entire pass of a song without messing up once. And you realize it's like, it's not about the little flubs or whatever. It's about something greater than the sum of the individual parts. And I think that, especially because of Steve introducing us to the power of that method, especially for a band who... You know, he took one look at us. He's like, you guys live. He's like, live is where it's connecting. And it's because that energy and that aggression is connecting and that honesty is there. The goal is to get that onto the record. It's going to sound great. It's going to sound big, whatever. It's like the goal is to get that on there. And that was one of those really integral ways that I, and I take that with me, even if I'm doing a remote production and, you know, an artist is sending me something, a whole session. The first thing I'll do is go in and be like, how does this tempo feel here? I'll just flex time everything, tick it out, and and I'll just play with some stuff. I do it everything, a lot of that stuff now at a standing desk. And the second I'm like, 
oh, wow. And if my head starts bopping and I start like dancing, I tell a lot of my clients this. I'm like, dude, I made these adjustments. It got me dancing. So just know that. <laughs> and that to me is like such a physical response where I'm just like, yeah. And then I'll go back. I'll listen to the original and be like, I'm not dancing there. I, I dance on on this one. And then we'll, you know, we'll go back and forth and see what feels good. And that's the not banded room version of the same thing. I've really found that to be super important from a foundation standpoint. It is crazy. Like the longer you make records and, you know, maybe if you've only been making music for a year, like you don't feel this yet, or maybe you do like a BPM or like a half BPM can be such a big difference on some songs. It can just be mind blowing. You're like, whoa, that's wrong. Or Yes, that's perfect. It is. And who would who would think? 98 to 99, man, it can't be that different. It is. It's crazy. And anybody out there, I think, would be so shocked if, the, you know, anybody that isn't making records, but obviously everybody that is, if you've made enough, especially in a band dynamic, you'll know all about the like one BPM arguments where you're just like, I don't know, I want the other. And then all of a sudden you're just like, I don't even know why I'm fighting for this. I wanted the other way, but now like you convinced me that one BPM up was better. And that was like my, I originally wanted it down. And now I'm like fighting for up. What are we doing here? It's one BPM, but it really, it does sometimes. And sometimes it also doesn't. Let's be fair. It depends on the part. And so I've learned there are certain hills not to die on. <laughs> if I'm just like, <laughs> hey, if the artist is like, has enough instinct to push back like three, four times and be like, okay, it is your record. I've said my thoughts. I'm not saying I'm right in all things. Ultimately, it's your record. So it has to feel good to you unequivocally. Right. So that's also a big thing. It's how people feel things too. I mean, the right. energy that they're taking away from the vocal melody might be totally different than the way that, you know, than you're feeling it. Right. This has been an awesome conversation. And I know like our last few questions will take a minute before we roll into those. Is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? Oh man. Well, you know, there is, but. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know. Do you want to talk about some of your artist development coaching or some of your production stuff? I know we've been talking about the band a lot, which is obviously, you know, very core for you. I mean, the band informs, that was the large portion and still is a very large portion of the journey and what I do, you know, so I'm totally okay with that. It does inform how I look at, you know, like you mentioned, the the coaching stuff that I, I've started doing and specifically out of the last two years, because it was something that I could do remotely with people where I, you know, at a certain point, you're like, hey, uh, like I never saw myself as somebody that felt qualified in any way to give advice, but I can just give you honest thoughts, you know, and yeah. sometimes I, you know, at a certain point I was like, man, that feedback is actually one of the biggest determining factors of someone progressing to a potential quote unquote successful outcome, right? You know, because that's obviously kind of relative. And I think that's where the coaching stuff kind of came into play. And it's been really incredibly fulfilling, honestly, how much trust gets extended. And then seeing now, you know, a couple people that I've worked with for coming up on like almost two years and seen incredible journey from like having no concept of home recording to like just being like, home tracking ninjas and learning full dolls all the way to, you know, getting into like now some like mixed consultation stuff to help like conceptualize philosophies of people that like, hey, I want to be able to like do everything for my band, but I know that I can't and I want that to grow. But I also like in that way, like looking for multiple areas to grow themselves. And it's awesome. And like I said, that kind of goes back to you know, it took us a really long time to be like, oh, this is uniquely Wonder Years. I get it now. And I didn't before all of these things that maybe sometimes I was fighting or wanted 
something else to be. And now I, I would never yeah. give up any of those things because they're what makes you, you and trying to help anybody else. It doesn't matter. We say like young artists can be people that have been doing it for 10, 20 years and maybe for whatever reason, never realize it's like, Hey, this is actually the better medium for this. Like maybe Twitch is actually where, you know, like this platform didn't exist, but now it does. And what you're doing is exactly fits right at home with that and what people want out of, you know, out of that platform. And so it's connecting a lot of those dots and it's getting to know people on a level that I think sometimes you only get to know them over the course of making a whole record together, right? Um, or in the studio and and asking these questions about what they like over the course of, you know, we we talked about the Lo Fang record that you did and how you kind of just like got to know each other and we're like, hey, I like spending time. I trust you. Like, that's cool. And that blossoms into another whole incredible project. And, and in that way, the coaching stuff is me really trying to get at that and pull out the things about people that maybe they don't think are interesting or relevant to their music yeah. or what they're doing, but can really make all the difference when it comes down to like separating themselves and, and evolving those kind of natural abilities. So that's pretty much like the coaching stuff. Um, and I love it because I can do it wherever, whenever, and can be flexible. And, uh, they don't have to be people that are right down the road to come into the studio. Like they once were, you know, I can have people in Budapest or in the UK and Canada and California. And so it's, it's nightmare from a time zone and scheduling standpoint, but there's apps for that, you know? So it's great. Right. Yeah. That's right. No, it is, it is really great to have like a sounding board. And I think a lot of people, I don't know, can benefit from having a neutral party because, you know, a lot of times like you won't really get truly honest feedback from like your bandmates or your close friends, you know, but if there's like, you have somebody whose job, whether you're paying them or not, you're going to get a more honest answer from like a coach type person and, I don't know. I think people benefit from that stuff. I've talked about it on the show a million times, but yeah. And sometimes there's an accountability thing where people are just like, I really want to do it, but I just like, it's just me on an Island yeah. and I get distracted. I'm the same way. I always do the like personal training kind of coach metaphor. It's like, you don't necessarily pay them for the exercises. You can find those anywhere. You pay them to tell you which order and how to do them and to have to show up and be like, Hey, did you do them? No. Yeah, I know. You know, and sometimes that's more valuable. And a friend, a significant other is not going to have that fight to be like, you got to go do your workout now, you know? And I don't think a good coach is supposed to do that either, but it's just knowing that you have to show up, you know, when you're yeah. in grade school, it's like, you knew if you were going to walk into class and you didn't do it, the teacher was going to be like, oh, why, why didn't, didn't you, do, you it? do it? And you were going to have to come up with some dog ate my homework bullshit, right? <laughs> uh, so I, I think that's, trying to be unbiased in that sense, but also realize that like, Hey, I do no good to anybody. If I just like try to like sugarcoat something, you know, you're coming to me for like kind of the hard truth if it is that, you know, but it's not always that. So. Yeah. It's awesome. I think it's cool that you're doing that. I don't know if you've heard any of the episodes in season two, but something I'm trying to talk about this year is credits and kind of like how they're a bit messed up at times or they don't make any sense. They're mixed up. Do you have any like thoughts about crediting like especially musicians or i like them um <laughs> you know i'd like to get more of them <laughs> you know um it's like that oh what is that that's a quote where he's just like do you have any thoughts on money it's like i like it i'd like to have more of it but um <laughs> i think it is important especially now where you know you're not seeing the same like 
return on investment as you once maybe did from a studio standpoint or like being rewarded in a lot of these like tangential service like based jobs in the music industry, especially. So I think if for anything else, the fact that something can be credited is really important because if it finds its way out there and, you know, onto whatever platform, whether it's a streaming DSP, it's like TikTok or something. If there's a way to be like, hey, I really like this. And right in the moment, I can be like, I wonder who's responsible for this. You know, yeah. and you'd be like, it's this artist. They did it with this person. They did it at this place. It was released on this label, whatever it is. And it, things should be credited in that way. And there are plenty of agencies that, you know, go out and try to make it so and, and keep the world in balance in that way um, with credit. But uh, I think it's going to be more and more important the more stuff gets out there and lost in the digital realm. And, uh, you know, and I don't love the fact that a lot of people are like, well, we can get you good exposure. It's like, that's also basically being like, we'll get your name out there. It's like, no, but also like it is a job and I did do work. If that work brought you value, then let's estimate how much value roughly that work brought you into a fair degree. And so I think that's also okay. So it's a slippery slope. It's finding the balance between two of those. But I think it's definitely important to, to try and get things right and keep track of it. Oh man, I haven't thought about like, this is going to be great for your career. This is going to be good exposure. I mean, well, not not in the Spotify era. That's like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll produce your record for free. And then no credit's just going to be a dashed yeah. line in Spotify's and excellent exposure there. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we've hit a lot of things. Was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? You know, I don't know about a specific time, but I do know that especially over the last five years, I'd say I've started to dive deeper into a mindset where I'm paying less attention and trying to steer away from what a lot of social media is reinforcing, which is like metrics and a lot of like numbers and trying to ascertain, you know, your progress and growth and look at it in more of a kind of holistic, all-encompassing way of bringing value because value doesn't always translate to a number, even though in the service industry, like I just said, I kind of um, said the exact opposite, you know, it, it um, I think, and ultimately an impact, right? So that can be like a I deep, like resonant emotional impact, mm-hmm. or it can be as simple as, Hey, how can you quantify the value of helping someone understand that this one thing that they were doing is actually not the interesting thing. And this one thing about them is like, the keystone to why people will attach themselves and feel drawn to them as an artist and as a musician, right? In some ways, those are priceless assets for a creative. So in that way, like, it's tough to find that in a metric, but it will show up, right? You know, like, it's sometimes just not in the right order, right? Um, Just not in the same order. So I, I think looking to add value to whatever I'm doing and whoever I'm working with in whatever capacity, whether it's my band, whether it's somebody that I'm producing or, you know, something I'm mixing or just playing a small part in doing like remote guitar, you know, throwing down some guitar stuff or just being creative with a friend. I'll try to add as much value to that as I can and then hope that anybody that I'm working with, you know, feels the same way. And luckily I'm very grateful. Everybody that I that I do work with now on a regular basis is is incredible and always makes me feel like, oh man, I thought I did a good job and put some time in. They really went above and be, you know? Um, yeah. And I think that's where the shift that I started trying to internalize is that it's not about the money, right? It's about just kind of like putting that that value and and yourself out there as a resource and trying to 
make an impact on as many people as possible. And then a lot of people talk about like, obviously this is talking about success in music in this industry, which is sometimes kind of like a very amorphous idea nowadays. We're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. A bunch so. of people on all these blogs say, this is the 10 things you got to do, but like I'm out here doing them. I'm still got a day job, right? Like, yeah. and that's totally yeah. fair. That's totally relevant. I think that's actually a lot of times way more normal, you know? So I wish that would be destigmatized and, and stop like, kind of making people feel like failures for just being like, you have a side job, you have a, you know, whatever. It's like, that doesn't make you not a professional, right? right? I mean, I know people that are mixing incredible, like number one rock records or whatever, where they're just like, yeah, they're like number one job is a dad. And they, that's just like their hobby. That's not them paying the bills. They have somebody else that works and supports the household and, you know, but anybody else would be like, you're killing it. Right. And so it's, <laughs> it goes back to what we said. It's never necessarily what you think or what it seems, but I think, um, Figuring out what you really love doing and what you really love and how you are most able to pass that kind of value along to somebody else. And then once you get really good at that, just figure out how to keep doing that thing, right? Yeah. Even if it means yeah. supporting yourself financially in another way. Because then eventually you'll see a window where people are like, you've given me too much. I have to pay you more. And straight up, I know people don't think that, but like the people that you attract will be the ones that will truly value what you're bringing to the table and what you're giving to them. And will say, no, 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 no. You went above and beyond. I'm paying you for those extra two hours because you didn't have to do that. And it's crazy. And, and that seems like such a thing, but I see it happen all the time. And I will leave your listeners with this because this was also like a huge shift in this mindset. And this book comes up a lot. But if you haven't mentioned it or anybody else, I've got to go ahead and mention it. It's a book called The Go-Giver. And it is super short. I think it's like 80 pages. I'll find it and like send you a link after this. So if you want to include it in the notes or whatever, but yeah, dude, if I can leave anybody with one just sense and reading this book, it seems like you're like, well, this is like a business book. This is about a business guy, like whatever. It's not apply it to whatever you're doing as a professional or aspiring professional in this. And it will transform the way you look at things like networking that people try to like shove down your throat and you're just like, yeah, but what does that mean? It's like, well, it means a lot of stuff that you will start to unpack the second you're like, hey, instead of money, how can I like provide more value to the person that is hiring me? Right. Uh, there's so many lessons packed into that. And it's still to this day, it like keeps presenting lessons. So it's crazy. That's, that's so I would, I would definitely recommend, again, like I said, it's a quick listen, but it's something you'll reread it a thousand times if you actually get it and you'll things will start clicking and be like, oh my God, that's what I'm doing. I have not read it yet. It's on my list and I know I've heard a million people mention it. Oh, it's great. Well, I'm, I'm going to read it and somebody listening is going to read it with me. Yeah, you got to let me know what you think. Yeah, yeah. You know, you were talking about impact and I was like doing uh, like a group hang mastermind. You can call it whatever you want. And like somebody was talking about like, you know, like, well, it's, you know, talk about your like elevator pitch or like your mission statement for like your career or your vision or whatever. And, you know, I wrote out a thing that was like a couple sentences and then like listening to other people talk about like what theirs were and like people were like reading it or pasting it in the chat or whatever. And then just the phrase impact. And I was like, I could delete all of these sentences and just impact to, you know, allow an artist's music to make an impact to allow people's careers to make an impact. It's like, if you just think about that word for a minute, like, you know, value and impact. Like if you take those two words that Casey just said, and you just think about those for a little while, it's going to like, it'll twist your head around. It, it'll be a good way to, to approach things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. 
So last question before we go, what right now is your current biggest goal that you can share with us? And what is the next smallest step you're going to go towards it? Wow. Honestly, in general, I'll say this, talking about impact, right? You can divide those into like a couple things in how you show up for other people and to other people. So I think about it in terms of like reach, inspiring, motivating, and connecting, but we'll put them all into the impact category. And the biggest goal, if I have to like really like fully globally conceptualize it and sound like a crazy person is to impact a million people. What does that mean? That sounds insane. However, when you really start, if you wanted to like start breaking it down into like, what does that mean? Well, I feel like every time I'm a part of the Wonder Years and we go play a show, you know, that's impacting a couple thousand people. You know, this tour we're on, it's going to do like 50, 70,000 tickets across the US, whatever it is. That's impacting a number of people. And that's just in person in shows, let alone replay value of things, you know, that I create and and help bring to life for other people. And then people that I show up and the community and people that they are based in, in their bands and that their music is then shared with and their stories are told to. So in that way, in a like six degrees of Kevin Bacon kind of thing, it starts (laughs) to kind of feel a little bit more attainable when you talk about like having this, um, this kind of ever growing and ever creeping impact. But so that's like the big kind of goal to continue like chipping away at in a cool way that keeps me motivated. But I will say to do that now, a couple things. One, you mentioned the podcast, which the next step in that will be season two of the record process, where we're starting to bring in some incredible guests and talk through some amazing works, you know, both albums, soundtracks, everything in between with a ton of really cool perspectives. Ooh, soundtracks. I like it. And the smallest step to that is I'm literally about to right now get off and record an episode. So that's a small step. And then shortly thereafter that, well, I'll have another international coaching session. So this is I'm a look at my next two hours for you (laughs) and both small steps (laughs) and all, I guess, you know, landing under that. And then, um, you know, beyond that, I'm going to try to um, have the goal of like having a hand in putting out 75 songs this year. Some of that is already baked into a new Wonder Years record where right now, as this is being recorded, I'm going to go listen to and make some mix note revisions on those later after this is all done. So that's a small little step. Got a long night. Finish out of production. Yeah. You're doing a lot of stuff after this. You have no idea. (laughs) And then at some point I'll sleep in there because that's the key to success. But uh, yeah, so, you know, breaking it all down in that way and trying to stay organized but also excited about everything, which I am. So thanks for asking. Helps me reframe. (laughs) There you go. There you go. And sometimes you just got to say it out loud. Dude, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. I would love to keep going if you didn't have to do mixed notes, another interview. And like, I don't know, what are you going to like write 10 songs tonight too? Oh, no, certainly not. Nope, nope. (laughs) Do you want to tell people when the tour starts, where they can find you, where they can find the band and whatever you want to let people know, just go for it. You can find the band at thewonderyearsband.com. It's the website or just the Wonder Years Band like on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at case underscore rock. You can find the studio on Instagram as well at True Level Studio or truelevelstudio.com. You can also find me at uh, caseycavalier.com. It's my personal website. That's usually where I'll show up or get back to anybody. As we mentioned at the top, other platforms, not so much. And that if you want to get in touch with me in any way, you can do that. And then, of course, you can follow along with the record process at the record process on Instagram or um, via the show page, wherever you're maybe listening to this or, you know, a bunch of other good podcasts, hopefully. So, yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at. 
<laughs> awesome. And as usual, links to all that in the show notes. I mean, I don't even know why podcasters say that anymore. Everybody knows there's links in the show notes. But uh, dude, this is great. We should keep in touch. We should hang out. If you're ever in LA, let's get a coffee, get a beer, whatever your thing is. Let's do it. Oh, I hopefully will be very shortly. If not, maybe currently right now, well, this is airing depending on when that <laughs> depending is. Depending on when so, it is. So <laughs> yes, it is on the calendar. But yeah, no, thank you. This has been great, dude. So that's a wrap on episode 62. Thanks to Casey Cavalier for coming on the show and hanging out. Definitely check out everything he's up to as well as his band, The Wonder Years. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, the absolute biggest thing you could possibly do to help out is to share it with a friend that you think might enjoy it. I would greatly appreciate that. And also don't forget to join in the conversation over at completeproducer.net. So I'll see you there or I'll see you here. Wherever it is, I'll see you next time.